I had this moment where I thought, what if this is, what if this is me going and, and by the end of the today, I'm on a ventilator or what if, I don't know. I, my mind just started to go to really dark places and I sat and I held my dog on my couch for a while and just kind of very intentionally pet him and gave him a kiss and said, I love you. And then I'm, um, I made my way to the hospital. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Lucas Estock. He's a restaurateur and he lives in New York City, and he recently recovered from coronavirus. Welcome, Lucas. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you're here, and I'm so grateful that I get a chance to learn your story. So you are not the typical coronavirus patient we heard about months ago when it started becoming an epidemic. Can you talk a little bit about what your life was like before you got sick and how old you are and things like that? Yeah, sure. Um, So... Uh, I, I live in New York City. My husband and I recently moved from Brooklyn to Manhattan a couple of months ago. Um, I'm 36 years old. I, uh, I'm, I'm fairly active. I go to the gym. Uh, I you know go to brunch on the weekends with my friends. I, um, I work a lot. I sing in a gospel choir. I try to stay active You're mm-hmm. in New York City, and I try to take advantage of that. So, um, you know, I, I would hesitate to say my life is standard, but I also know that I uh, just baked uh, banana bread this weekend and put it on my Instagram. So I, it, life is what life is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're living sort of like a quarantine life like all of us. I am. I'm living life. I, we were in an apartment in Brooklyn a few months ago that we had more space than we needed. We were very fortunate. We had a rooftop and everything. And then we decided, you know what, let's let's try life in Manhattan for a little while. Uh, and three months after we did that, coronavirus happened. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, because um, the city is really, my aunt lives in the city and I have friends who live around the city and I know life has changed quite a bit. Yeah, life has changed quite a bit. I mean, I haven't seen a whole lot of it outside of our one bedroom apartment, but I've seen <laughs> photos and it sure looks like it's different. It's now. pretty empty. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, when you first started hearing about uh, COVID-19 and coronavirus, what, where did you stand on concern or anxiety about it? I try to stay on top of what's going on in the world. I, I really do as much as, you know, anyone can, given how kind of crazy the world seems to be right now and how fast everything is coming at you. Um, But I remember being aware of the virus happening. I obviously remember uh, it being kind of like talk about this thing that was coming somewhere out of China that I wasn't aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't really, I don't know why it just never registered inside of me that it was a thing that was going to come here, especially not to this level. And I don't, you know, I don't know anybody who isn't a professional in that area who really Mm -hmm. thought it was. Um, but I, you know, I remember the first time a case happened in New York City, and it was uptown, and it was maybe New Rochelle or something. And I just remember thinking, "Oof, man, sucks they got it." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so, I'm yeah. laughing like I'm like chagrined because I had the same thing, and and in some other episodes, I talked about how when it was first, you know, abroad, I thought, "Oh, it's not coming here." I mean, it's abroad; they're going to contain it, you know, just like they yeah. pretty much contained Ebola. You know, this is not something I have to worry about. SARS hadn't really affected me 
personally or even people I knew when that happened. So I felt really insulated. And so I'm laughing because I'm laughing kind of ruefully because I'm in the same position now as you are now, except you have a much more extreme story. So how do you have any sense of how you got it or around when you got it? So I think so. And I'll just say for the record, and just to kind of like level set between the two of us that I think a lot of us are doing a lot of sort of um, healing laughter, which isn't necessarily (laughs) born out of funny, genuinely funny situations, but is born out of being able to kind of see the, you know, the, the, the things that are important in life and not, and, you know, just kind of being able to find joy or I don't know, levity in any situation is really important right now. Uh, And so I I don't mean to make light of, you know, obviously the virus. Um, And it was, uh, it was an intense experience. So I feel like if anyone can laugh, if anyone can laugh about it, you have permission, (laughs) you know, like you've been through it. Um, So yeah, so I'm pretty certain, and this is obviously not a scientific study. I think I got it at a birthday party in in Bushwick in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. at the end of February. Um, Timing wise, it just sort of lines up where I think it was six days after I was at the birthday party that I began showing symptoms. Um, And that kind of line falls in line with the standard incubation period for, you know, kind of the most common average that I've Mm -hmm. read about. Um, And so, and the other reason why I feel like that was likely it is that um, my husband, uh, who is also at the party, a friend of ours, a few of his cousins um, and one of their roommates all lost their sense of taste and smell about a week after we were at that party. And that was the only kind of common event we had all shared. And the timing was just so spot on. Huh. But their symptoms didn't change further? Thankfully, no. I I don't know how. I mean, this is kind of what we're all learning about coronavirus right now, right? Mm -hmm. Is that it has such a wide spectrum of effects and sometimes and maybe even a lot of times none at all. Yeah. Uh, And so that's, you know, the uncertainty of all of this is what I think has been gnawing uh, at at me psychologically, Mm -hmm. but certainly not knowing whether or not you're carrying it and transmitting it is, is huge. Yeah. Um, But yeah, the fact that there, there was that commonality between us all, uh, kind of points for me to that being when I was exposed. Mm -hmm. So then um, what were your early symptoms like? And, you know, take, take me back to, you know, how this situation unfolded for you. Sure. Uh, I don't, I don't think I recognized my first symptoms as symptoms. One, because it was still early uh, on in, in our awareness of the virus, especially uh, the virus being something that was within the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was, I was really tired on a Friday um, and it didn't feel like I was sick, but I was just really, really tired. And I just, I almost felt like I was hungover mm-hmm. um, without the right to be. And <laughs> I just kind of chalked it up to, oh man, it was a really busy week at work and I'm just kind of ready for the weekend. And it was a Friday. And, um, and so that was it. And the next day I woke up and it was clearly not uh, a hangover. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, you know, I found myself on Saturday late afternoon curled up on the end of my bed. I just kind of like found myself in my bedroom and found myself crawling up on top of my bed, fully dressed and just needing to lay down. Mm. Um, that is not who I am. Mm-hmm. And it felt there was a moment where I was like, this isn't right. What am I doing? Because I didn't even think about it. My body just pushed myself to lay down. Interesting. And so I went to the bathroom and I grabbed our thermometer and I, I checked and I had uh, I had a I think it was like a hundred point something. It wasn't a huge fever, but it was a fever. 
Um, and my husband and I had plans to go to a restaurant opening that night for some friends of ours. And I was really excited about it, but you know, one, I just, I wasn't about to leave the apartment with a fever. Um, and certainly not given what we were hearing about, you know, fever being one of the the call symptoms of coronavirus. I just felt like, you know what, I'm staying in. So you had, um, even though it hadn't been as much on your radar by this point with the, the fever and a week has passed in time since the party, maybe you're, you're like, it's on your radar now that possibly you might have contracted it. Yeah. And I think it really speaks to just how quickly we've been all trying to learn about and how quickly information has been starting to flow about this virus that between the very last week of February and the first, the end of the first week of March, there was a completely different awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, When I went to, when I went to the birthday party, I think it was February 29th. I didn't think anything of it. I never had a moment where I was like, Oh, this isn't something we should be doing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, uh, I I remember that on say March sixth or seventh, which is when it really started, the fever started. I think on on the seventh, um, it was the first thing that popped into my mind that mm-hmm. it was it was potentially coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so you know I I didn't I didn't call anybody. It was a Saturday evening. I just rested. The next day I still had a fever the whole day. I remember um, kind of just calling into my primary care physicians after hours number and just saying, Hey, I've got this. I don't know if it's anything. Um, and they called me back and they were like, listen, you got to watch your symptoms right now. There's really no way to know. And you haven't traveled recently to your knowledge. You really haven't been exposed to anyone who's traveled recently. So at this point, we're just going to assume, you know, it's cold and flu season. It could be a bunch of things, but just out of an abundance of caution. Why don't you just stay home and rest, hydrate, treat mm. the, the treat the fever with Tylenol, um, and then on Monday, I think the fever was hovering around somewhere between like one hundred one five and maybe you know just around like one hundred two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Monday, and this is three days into a fever, and I have no other no other strong physical symptoms other than that kind of like soreness and chills and sweats that come with a fever. Mm. Um, I decided to go to a city MD mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, I got there and this is, you know, still fairly early in terms of the city is still very fully functional. And I walked into the city MD and it felt like something out of a movie where, you know, and I think none of that registers now because this is just our every day, but right. everyone was in face masks. Everybody had gloves on at the city MD. When they checked me in, they kind of, you know, like, like handed me things at arm's at arm's reach. Mm. Um, and I thought, wow, this is, uh, that's crazy. Um, they checked me in. And when the doctor actually came to, uh, you know, l- look at me and, and give me a full viral panel for flu and strep, they were wearing a full body shield. Like wow. I, I've never, I've never seen it before. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was surreal. Um, I and I, I have, cause we're so used to it now on the news. Yeah, I, like I felt radioactive at the time. I've mm-hmm. never felt like that. Um, and so they did a, they did uh, two nasal swabs and a throat swab. Oh, no. uh, those were my first of what if, what has now been five nasal swabs. Um, those are not you ne- fun. You never get used to that feeling. No, <laughs> like, I've had them only for the flu and, um, I felt like I could feel my brain for the rest of the day. Yeah. So they, they tested me. They did a quick test for flu and strep. Both came back negative. And even then the, the physician at city MD said, listen, this is, you have, 
you have nothing that we're right now expecting to align with exposure to COVID-19, right? Like you have, again, you've not traveled, you've not been near someone that you're aware has traveled recently. And so what we're going to assume is that this is something viral and, you know, keep riding it out. And a couple of days from now, you should hopefully feel a lot better. Mm. Um, And so Tuesday went by and I was at home and I was just resting and I was still working from home. I was just, Mm. you know, I was just like, well, this, this sucks, but I'm not a person who typically calls out sick. And if I can work from home, then I'll work from home. So, uh, so were you Uh, eating? Were you hungry? Was your husband worried? Were you at this point relieved and thinking, okay, it's probably not coronavirus? I was eating. I was hungry. I had like, you know, I was not feeling great. Like I didn't feel energy wise. I felt really down. Mm. Um, and you know, I didn't love that I would go to bed and kind of have that, like that, those sweats and chills that you get when you can't quite regulate your own body temperature. Mm. But it, it wasn't so bad the first couple of days other than just kind of generally feeling down. Yeah. And, and it, it occurs to me that a part of that might have been just that nobody I spoke to seemed too concerned. And so I was able to kind of like keep my spirits up a bit by thinking this passes, right? Like this is the time of year we're in. Right. People and also the idea regularly. that, you know, you fought viruses your whole life and you, this is how it feels when you're sick and you know, your body will kill it. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I had, you know, it was, it was the Tuesday when the fever continued Wednesday, um, the fever was mostly there. And then by Wednesday night, the fever kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, and I developed a little bit of a dry cough on, on the Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, I reached out to my primary care physician just to give him an update. And I remember thinking, I think I remember saying, listen, the fever's gone. I've got a little dry cough. And he responded by saying, listen, this happens when you have a viral infection and you're in the last stages of it. It's not uncommon to develop I, I want to say he, he didn't, it, there was no technical name for what he described it as. Um, and, and it was almost commonly like labeled exactly what it is, which is like a post-viral cough. <laughs> um, he was like, you know, it's not uncommon to develop something called a post-viral cough, which is, you know, a good sign that your body is getting over whatever it was, whatever it was going through. And so I was excited and encouraged. And I was like, you know, good. I didn't have coronavirus. I just had something. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Thursday morning, I woke up without a fever and I was really excited. I still had the cough and, um, but nothing too serious. And then Thursday afternoon, the fever came back so fast and so hard that I was at, I think when I took my temperature and I realized something was off, I was at 102.7. Wow. Um, And from that point on, the fever stayed for, I think, another week um, straight, maybe a little longer than a week. So, and it was at that point, um, the, the fever stayed, it stopped kind of oscillating behind between that kind of like 100 to 101.5. It, only oscillated between 101.5 and 102.7 or 8. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when um, the cough started to get a little bit worse. Um, nothing com- nothing particularly notable for the first couple of days, but because I was, n- I was never not uh, fevering, that's when psychologically it started to wear down on me. Mm-hmm. And that's when my doctor stopped kind of being optimistic that this was something other than coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was also nothing we could do about it. So my, my doctor just kind of said, listen, you're going to have to ride this out. You're going to need to stay very hydrated. You're going to need to rest as much as you can. Uh, you know, this was, this was his advice and I'm just going to put it out there in the, in the context of communicating what my experience was. 
he had me occasionally alternating in Advil um, so that I wasn't only taking Tylenol because I know one is one is processed through your liver and one is processed through your kidneys. And because this fever was not dying down, uh, I think there was a bit of concern, like we don't want to put all the stress on one of your organs mm-hmm. right now. Um, you know, I had read some anecdotal reports that they were concerned that um, Advil might have uh, a negative effect on your 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 body's ability to fight off the virus. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether or not that's true or not. Yeah, so I, I'll just say that too, my, yeah. Yeah, and, and certainly scores of people, once I let people know that I had coronavirus, uh, scores of people sent me that article. <laughs> I was like, please stop. I have doctors, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but no, but he, I you know he consulted with colleagues of his um, and, you know, he was like, we haven't seen that direct correlation yet. And so we're just going to keep kind of keep an eye on you. But anyway, so I was alternating fever reducers. Uh, I was resting. I was hydrating. I was, you know, washing my hands to the point where I think a lot of us are, which is dry, dry skin. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, was your husband and, staying away from you at this point or had you assumed you'd already contaminated, you know, the so- space? For the first few days, no, because we just thought that it was, you know, whatever it was, I was just going through a little viral something and we weren't, you know, we were keeping some distance, but nothing to the point of, you know, like hazmat suits or anything. Um, And then he had um, a need to travel. He had like plans to travel before I ever knew that it might be Corona. Mm -hmm. So it was like two days in that I had a fever. He had to travel. I have the dog as a nurse, so I'm good. Mm. Um, and he he left, and it was while he was away that I I got bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was that second weekend that I had symptoms when I started to feel just hor- horrible. Mm. <laughs> um, I I don't really. It's been a couple weeks now that since I've been symptomatic, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, but it's crazy how quickly, uh, as people, our minds start to shove experiences like that down the memory hole, mm. because it it almost feels like a dream now. Because I remember there were points in leading up to and during that second weekend where I honestly thought maybe I'd never get better. Mm. Um, just psychologically, there's something when you've never been when you've never been seriously sick before, um, you know, and I'd never had a fever for longer than a day or two in my life, but going on my, you know, my seventh and eighth and ninth and 10th days of a fever that was actually averaging up instead of down, Mm. I found myself having some really difficult thoughts, um, and having a really challenging time, uh, staying, optimistic. Mm -hmm. And then on Sunday morning of the second weekend, I woke up and my, my dry cough had changed into something so much worse. Mm -hmm. Um, I woke up and it felt like someone was sitting on my chest. Mm -hmm. And when I tried to get out of bed, I just remember so much pain and trying to inhale. I would guess that I was probably pulling in about half the amount of air per breath that I'm used to before my chest felt like it was like there was a belt around it. Like I couldn't expand more. Um, and trying and trying only brought on a deeper and more aggressive cough than I had experienced yet. Um, and, and with it came a lot of pain. That's, uh, Um, that's, that must be so frightening. I can't, that sensation, I, I can't even imagine how you were not panicking at that point. I, I was at that point. Um, that was the moment when I really started to, uh, get scared. Um, my husband was still away. 
uh, I started to realize that very likely I needed to take myself to the hospital um, just because I, I do have, and I don't think I've included this to this point in our conversation, but I, I do have asthma. Mm. It's generally very well maintained. Mm-hmm. I, it is not since I was a child has it really kind of played a significant role in my life. It doesn't stop me from doing things. I have, you know, a regular inhaler that I, that I take to manage it. And I have a rescue inhaler that I almost never need to use. Yeah. It's, it's just not a factor day to day. Do you, like um, in our family, we have a couple of people, myself included, who need it during allergy season or if there's a really bad cold. Yeah, that's basically it. That's, that's about right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, there are certain times a year for me, it's, it's brought about by really cold, dry air. Mm-hmm. Um, something about that, my lungs just have a hard time processing. And so I find myself kind of managing my asthma symptoms. Um, but this, what I was experiencing was felt different. Um, I, you know, I've, I've dealt with asthma, I think since I mentioned, like I mentioned, since I was a kid, um, and I know what asthma feels like this felt fundamentally different, but because I have, you know, asthma in my history and that it occurred to me that if that were activated and that if, if I were experiencing these symptoms and then asthma kicked in, that's when the panic started to set in. Mm-hmm. And and then I actually got out of bed mm-hmm. and I tried to make my way to the bathroom and I got dizzy just walking to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of sat back down and I reached out to my husband and I called my primary care physician and they got back to me pretty quickly. And then I called the hospital and just said, listen, this is what my symptoms have been. This is what I'm feeling right now. Do you recommend that I come in? And they said yes. And so I sort of, you know, it feels ridiculous now because I was having trouble breathing, mm-hmm. but I made my bed <laughs> and <laughs> I um, tidied up my apartment a little bit. And I threw some extra socks and underwear and a t shirt in a backpack with my Kindle. And mm. I reached out to a neighbor friend and said, listen, hopefully I'm coming back today. But, um, if I don't, my dog is here, he has food and he has water, but he's going to need someone to check in on him. And, you know, very gratefully, my friend was immediately ready to, you know, answer the call. Mm-hmm. Um, and I cried. Yeah. Um, it was really hard. I, I just, I was, I, f- I don't know. I feel a little ridiculous right now. And again, because I'm so removed, but I, I had this moment where I thought, what if this is, what if this is me going and, and by the end of the today, I'm on a ventilator or what if, I don't know. I, my mind just started to go to really dark places and I sat and I held my dog on my couch for a while and just kind of very intentionally pet him and gave him a kiss and said, I love you. And then I'm, um, I made my way to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was, I was let in right away. Uh, they handed me a face mask. The moment I walked in, I had a scarf around my mouth when I was on my way and I had my gloves on. Um, and they admitted me pretty quickly. They took me into uh, an isolation room. Uh, everyone on the staff was so incredibly kind. And, um, you know, I, I have nothing but wonderful things to say about the people who were working at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, they let me know that the the isolation rooms had been built really quickly and just for this. So they had a bunch of them. And what hospital um, did you go to? Oh yeah. Sorry. I went to, I went to Lenox Hill on the Upper East side in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend uh, of my family had let me know that they had heard through 
you know, healthcare professionals that they had relationships with that um, Lenox Hill was perhaps a slightly lower barrier or hurdle to getting tested for coronavirus than some of the other hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, because at, at that point, I think, you know, I think we all know that even now there seems to be kind of like a lack of widespread testing available. And oh, yeah. um, my friend had heard anecdotal stories of doctors at Mount Sinai having a difficult time getting some of their patients authorized to be tested. So, you know, I, I wanted to know that for certain whether or not this is what I had. Um, so I went to Lenox Hill. Yeah. Um, they put me in the isolation room and I was I was there for the day. Uh, they, they did build them very quickly and they did not have time to kind of pipe in standard heating. Um, it was a it was a very cold uh-huh. room. I, there, I have a I have a picture, a selfie I took of myself where I'm in my, I've got my scarf, I've got my hoodie, I've got my jacket full zipped up. Um, it was, it was a, it was a long, cold day. That also sounds really <laughs> lonely. It was, there was, there was at a time, there was basically a three hour stretch where I never heard or spoke to or saw anyone um, from in that day. And and that was challenging. Uh, so anyway, so they, they admitted me. They asked me some questions about the the course of my symptoms. Um, they did pretty quickly swab me. Um, and uh, they ran a full viral panel, including testing for coronavirus. They then um, let me know that based on my symptoms, they were going to recommend that I get an X-ray of my chest. Mm-hmm. And it was at that moment where they left the room and they said, you know, next is an X-ray. And they shut the door that I... For, for 90 minutes, I didn't hear from anyone at all. And I was just kind of not sure what to do. And it's in a small isolation room and I'm potentially, you know, contagious and I'm not trying to leave the room. And uh, 90 minutes after they left me, the door swung open. Someone stepped in and slid a lead shield behind my back in the chair. And then they pointed a mobile x-ray machine through the door at my mm. chest, took the x-ray, grabbed the, the lead shield closed the door and I didn't hear from anyone again for about two hours. Wow. Um, I fell asleep in the chair at one point mm-hmm. and then they, they opened the door and they were like, you know, let's get you out of here. You've been here for a while. We think, you know, you're, you know, you, you based on your x-ray, you likely have it. You've got fluid in your lungs. You're showing basically signs that you have viral pneumonia. Um, and so we're going to assume that you have it, but you're on day I think I was on day nine or so at that point. They're like, you're on day nine. Like you're happy to be on day nine. Um, you know, you're, you know, you'd much rather be here than on day two. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I know they were trying to be light and everything. Um, but you know, my concern was I'm leaving now, but like, there's nothing you can do for me. Oh, like, so is you're there, saying, is there any you're risk? saying that they told you you've made it to, I want to make sure I understand you're up to day yeah. nine. So consider yourself lucky you're probably good to go home. At that point, they were like, listen, you're, you know, you look, you look like you probably have it. I don't know how much there is we can do for you right now, given based on your symptoms. And I immediately asked, you know, what happens if my chest gets Mm -hmm. worse? Like I have asthma, what happens if my symptoms now continue to accelerate, especially what if it becomes more difficult for me to breathe? And at that point, you know, they kind of said, listen, your, your oxygen levels look okay. Like we're, you seem like somebody who probably just needs to go home and continue to rest and stay the course. And I remember asking, how do you know my oxygen levels are okay? And it was that moment they looked at, they looked at my paperwork and realized they had forgotten to take my vitals. Um, And I attribute that 
to the fact that they were starting to get busy, right? Like this, the the cases were starting to build up. I'm really not trying yeah. to badmouth Lennox Hill at all. Um, but I had, I had not had my vitals taken and I had been there for a bunch of hours. And as a result, I had also missed a dose of Tylenol. So by mm. the time they took my vitals, my fever was just, just below th- 103. Um, and I, uh, uh, my oxygen level was acceptable. They, they said it was okay. So I'm very grateful. Mm-hmm. And based on really that alone, they said, listen, unless it gets worse and your oxygen levels start to drop, there really is nothing we can do for you here. And you're better off at home than you are sitting in a hospital. Um, and so they, they prepared everything for me to be discharged. And I ended up making my way home at the end of that day. Mm. And so I'm really grateful that I was only in the hospital for a day. Um, but yeah, so I, I went home and the fever continued on for, uh, another, I, I, I think it was like another four or five days. Um, and thankfully my, my breathing never did get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I did kind of start to have in the very late stages, I started to have very weird dreams for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was watching uh, Chris Cuomo on CNN the other day, and he has been doing his show while sick with coronavirus. And he took a moment out of his show. I was leaving the room, um, and I just heard him say, I think something that doesn't get talked about enough is is the psychology of what you go through when you're when you're going through the virus. And I stopped and I went back into the room and I'm paraphrasing Mm -hmm. him, but essentially he said, listen, like your mind goes places and it does. There were a couple of nights in the, in the end before I started to turn around that I woke up, not even really remembering where I was or what was going on. I remember feeling a sense of sort of panicked urgency. Um, and I remember thinking something was wrong and I couldn't remember what, and at this point my husband was back from traveling, but sleeping on the couch. Mm. And we were distancing as much as possible and we were both quarantined. And um, so it was just me and I woke up in in a dark room and I just remember not remembering where or really particularly who I was. Wow. Um, and it was, I, I, I don't know what to, how to account for it. Maybe it was the fever. I've read an anecdotal report that, that there is a potential cognitive side effect to maybe a small fraction or percentage of the cases mm-hmm. who experience coronavirus. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I, I, before I turned that corner and when it was going on my, my, the end of my second week with the virus, I really uh, struggled to maintain any sort of kind of positive outlook mm-hmm. um, at all. Yeah, I think, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that this idea of extended illness and extended fever and a battle that continues and is largely unknown, uh, you know, it's the beginning of this new virus for everybody can be really demoralizing. And I, I think I saw the same thing that Chris Cuomo, that same clip that you're talking about, because I know he's mentioned that coronavirus is a beast. And I know that he's mm-hmm. talked about it being, um, you know, very, uh, like it's a struggle to maintain your, your inner strength with it. Like it's, you gotta, you yeah. gotta kind of like grapple with it constantly. You do. I really felt it does feel like it's a beast. And I feel like 
looking back, there were moments when I was probably a bit of a beast as well. Mm. Um, and you know, I've already, I've, I've had a few apologies to my husband for whatever errant behavior I may have had <laughs> while I was just kind of like, you know, nothing, nothing horrific, nothing that would make the history books, but just sort of like levels of just irritability that you just, you're not aware of because it was so inwardly focused, mm-hmm. uh, for most of that experience that I just didn't have any sort of self-reflection on what I was doing out outside of well, myself. Well, it's also, you know, there are many things about coronavirus uh, in our world that is frightening and is unknown. And it's also, it's, you know, you were, you were struggling with it. Your fever went down, you were taking care of yourself. And then it kind of, it reared its head again. And the fever came back with a vengeance and then the lungs started. And it's, it's not like you were out there running marathons and ignoring the illness. You were taking care of yourself, you know? And so that's also a very frightening thing to see an illness come up so much worse, even when you're caring for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, I don't know that I could say it any better than you just did, but it was, it was that kind of constant struggle of I'm doing everything I should right now. I'm doing everything mm-hmm. my doctors told me I should, and I'm doing everything the hospital told me I should, and nothing is changing. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people for whom that is true, and then it gets better, and there are an unfortunate percentage of people who are experiencing this, and then it goes south. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just don't know based on really any Mm-mm. real measurable metric who's going to be which case mm-hmm. um, you know, when you yeah go ahead i was going to say there you know there are obviously certain calls certain signs or certain indicators that uh, might tell us which way it could go but it really hasn't discriminated against any notable demographic uh mm-hmm. you know in terms of just kind of absolutes Right, right, right. Well, they used to think, I mean, used to, I'm talking two months ago, two decades ago, they yeah. thought that um, only older people were prone or people yeah. with immunocompromised uh, bodies, but it's changing so fast. If you, when you think about coronavirus now, and when there's news coverage of it and things like that, are you able to engage or do you need to kind of disengage or is it kind of neither? So, so when I got, so I was tested on a Sunday, I got my results on a Thursday. Um, so I, I got my results about four days later. And it, when I, when I knew for certain what it was, I wrote a post about it on, uh, I put it on my Facebook and my Instagram. I had not really, you know, my close friends and family knew that I wasn't well and they knew mm-hmm. what we suspected it to be ultimately, but I didn't really want to add noise to the world, uh, about, anything that might not be coronavirus pretending it was, it just Mm. felt like there's so much, right. And so many people are so afraid and there's Mm -hmm. so many sources of misinformation. It felt when I knew things, when I knew something for certain, or even when I had been told something that, uh, you know, for my doctors, I was careful to phrase it in a way this say to make it, make sure people knew it was my journey. I was talking about my experiences I was talking about, but mm-hmm. I did feel it was important for me to put my voice out into my own village of, of a world, right? Like the people mm-hmm. that I'm able to have some contact with, whether it be my friends and family in New York and the surrounding area, or my friends and family in Wisconsin, where I grew up, you know, there were so many people who, for whom there was no personal connection to this virus. And um, at that time, and even now, 
I think being reminded of the the potential severity of the virus and being reminded of why we're all doing what we're doing, right? Like why we're all locking ourselves in our homes and and not hugging each other and not not being able to spend the time with each other that that you know we quite frankly need. Um, mm-hmm. There's a reason for this, and for a lot of people, you know even still now in parts of the country where this virus hasn't necessarily made its way in or had the impact that it has in New York, um, rem- reminders of why we're doing this are important. Um, mm-hmm. And I think trying to form a personal connection are important. And I think that being able to connect with this in a way that isn't just watching television news is important. If you could know things about the virus you had your choice of information to learn about. Let's say you can fast forward to full understanding of the virus. Hopefully we get that. What are the things you're most curious about having been a patient? The, the thing I'm, you know, fast forwarding and the thing I'm most curious about even to this moment um, is whether or not I'm immune. Right now, whether I, you know, there are mm. a lot of things that I, I will say this. And I, just before I fully answer your question, I was very fortunate I, I consider myself fortunate that I had this early. I had I had full access to my primary yeah. care physician. I had full access to and and privilege to go to a hospital when I when it when it got to that point and I needed to without um, without fearing that they were going to have to turn me away because I wasn't severe enough. Um, that's a, that's mm-hmm. a privilege, especially in this city right now, where you know I think I just watched drone footage of a mass mm-hmm. grave they're building or digging off of an island, uh, an island off of Manhattan. Um, I I'm very fortunate that yeah. I caught this early and that I that I have had not had to wrestle with unemployment, that I have not had to wrestle with lack of insurance. There's so many reasons why I had access to as good a inf- as good of information as was available at the time. Um, my doctors were, my doctor was constantly mm-hmm. reaching out to his other colleagues, but I was one of his first patients, um, who had it mm-hmm. and he was, t- he would frequently call me just to see what did the doc, like, what did the hospital say? What did their, what did they say when you got your test results? Because there's so little information out there, at least it's changing so quickly. Um, but he just wanted to make sure he was, you know, in line and understanding what was being communicated to patients in, in hospitals or from other, you know, physicians. And so he let me know know, um, you know, Mm -hmm. he's very careful about maintaining kind of privacy and everything, but he was like, listen, he's like, I have like 250 Mm -hmm. something patients that are currently wrestling with coronavirus and you are the first person to fully recover. He's like, so I'm sorry if I'm kind of like putting you on the spot for information. He's like, but you're kind of my test patient (laughs) in terms of what happens. And I I feel like, um, in New York too, you have this very different, um, I don't know, this very different future for a little bit longer because it is such an epicenter. We are in Seattle, we're we're school's done, we're not gonna come back. And yeah, and right now we're in early May that we're supposed to revisit these lockdown plans. Um, and you know, parents are wondering if their kids are gonna go to summer camp and people are wondering when they can get out and do things. And it, it's frightening because something that I read through Morgan Stanley was a prediction that um, we might be able to ease up a little bit in the summer, but that this will probably rise up again in with a vengeance in the winter again, and that March it will peak again next March before a vaccine comes into play. And I think it's a it's a tough ask um, for for people and especially Americans. Um, I'm all for it. I really feel like where I live in Washington, people 
complied pretty early for the most part, but yeah. I, I, it, it, it wears on people and certainly for people who are isolated, you know, people who have older relatives who might be alone, it's, it's a tough ask. It's a really tough ask. And, uh, you know, uh, my, on a professional level, the way I enter the world is through the restaurant industry, whether or not it's, you know, our restaurant upstate or the restaurants I work with on a daily basis. And that is one of more, you know, one of a lot of industries right now that don't know what their future looks like. Um, and you know, to your point, I I've read a lot of the, of similar things where the expectation is that even if we can ease up on some of what we're doing right now, we are far away from any sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a really challenging psychological thing to wrap your head around. Yeah. But we don't, we don't focus nearly enough. I think this is my own opinion on, on mental health and emotional health in our culture and particularly in this country. And I think we kind of I think we do pay lip service to the need for it a lot, but this is really truly testing the need for people to be focused mm -hmm. on not just their own mental and emotional health, health, but the health of those around them. Um, this is going to go on and it's not just the social isolation or the physical distancing that we're going mm -hmm. through. It's people who have made their entire lives uh, in an industry that is fundamentally being torn apart. Um, you know, that, that has its impact. It's people who have regular mm -hmm. health conditions who are maybe not being able to address them in a full way uh, because of hospitals needing to prioritize COVID patients. And, um, and it's people who, yeah, are already struggling before this all started, uh, whether it be psychologically, whether it be emotionally. Um, there are people who, who feel alone yeah. all the time. And I cannot imagine the toll that this is taking on them um, and not, not to go down a tangential rabbit hole, but one of the things, you know, my husband and I mm -hmm. waited in a very long distanced line to go into a grocery store last weekend. Um, and an aspect of this that had not occurred to me was um, the homeless population in New York city. I think living in New York um, you're used to seeing, having, you're used to there being a presence uh, of, of homeless people around you and, and, and needing things and asking for things. And there's always that balance mm -hmm. of when, you know, when can, and should you interact and engage and give, and when is it more appropriate to be focused on, you know, the types of organizations that are helping those individuals. Um, and so that's, a, that's a regular New York occurrence. But right now, what, what I was seeing as we were standing in line was a homeless person going up to people waiting to cross the street, um, and them, actively moving away from that person like they were radioactive right like that they like they were untouchable and i can't imagine what it's doing to a to a section of our population that are that is already so um so, mm -hmm. so challenged um on so well, many ways right. that imagine suddenly one day people are allowed or almost encouraged to essentially mm -hmm. run away from you yeah. And also that idea of resources being so scant that who's going to get yeah. the resources and who's going to be able to help nonprofits right now. And, you know, especially in a place yeah. like Seattle, which had this kind of amazing growth for so long and so many nonprofits and so many charitable uh, givers 
that all that that changes, yeah. you know, and I think also about your your point about, you know, other medical needs, you know, people who need surgeries that are not emergency surgeries are not cosmetic surgeries, but for comfort, you know, people who need new hips, people who need back surgery, they need to wait right now, you know, because the hospitals are busy necessarily, you know? And I do, I think what you said is so true about the virus because you either wanted to get it early on when the systems weren't completely taxed or wait until, or hopefully if you're going to get it, get it much later when supplies are replenished and people aren't so exhausted, you know? So um, it's true when you mentioned going into the hospital and getting service and care and getting a room, that was pretty amazing compared to how things are now. It was it was one week after I um, brought myself to the hospital and was tested that they had announced in New York that they were really only going to be admitting people who were to the point where they needed to be hospitalized longer term. So mm-hmm. I was seven days away from them raising a threshold for testing past where I was, and mm-hmm. which means, you know, we can assume that my virus would have stayed the course that it was on, but that I would not even have had an opportunity to confirm that, you know, that I had it and Mm -hmm. confirm what was going on in my own lungs. Exactly. And I think also that you might've maybe received a little bit of a boon from hearing from the doctors that we feel okay with letting you go home. We think that you can manage this. I mean, you know, there are a lot of stories and it, it's a wide range of experiences with this virus, but just to hear from a hospital, we're going to let you go home right now and, and finish healing there might have offered you a little bit of a, a kind of a, a boon. No, that's possible. That's that absolutely true. Um, yeah. I, you know, being able to be back in my home by the end of the the day where I didn't need any of the random little supplies I had put into my backpack. Um, mm-hmm. And I was able to basically be back in my bed with my dog and just, yeah, that was a huge relief to me. Uh, yeah. Especially when I had just kind of like mentally prepared myself for what if I'm at the hospital now? What if I'm staying? Um, which, which exactly also, you know, was a little bit um, ahead of the curve as well, because I don't know that we were hearing as many stories at that point about people who just don't make it, you know, from the hospital. I mean, it wasn't as in the news as it is now. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So your next steps, um, I know that there are, I know that you are healing and I, I would assume that you're not contagious anymore, right? I'm not contagious anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm really excited about that. Well, at least I'm, I, I should say, and this is, <laughs> this goes back to your question, right? Like, what do I wish I knew, right? Like, yeah. I, I don't know if I have an immunity. They assume I might, right? Just based on the fact that this virus hasn't shown itself necessarily to exhibit like traits outside of the standard virus in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also don't know, you know, while I don't have it right now, and I was very recently retested um, as a, as a part of seeing if I can perhaps participate in the plasma donation that Mount Sinai and their other hospitals are trying to put together. um, I do at least know if nothing else right now that I don't currently have coronavirus and that um, I'm (laughs) recovering. You're taking all the steps now to make sure you don't get it again too, which we're all behaving. We should hopefully all be behaving like we might have it or someone around us has it, which will hopefully keep us safe. So I would love to check in with you 
um, in a little while when you learn more about plasma donation and, you know, see how that goes. And if you're able to share some of that as that unfolds. So if you, I would be very happy to, yeah, yeah, I'd love to have you on. And, and Lucas, can you, uh, is there anywhere listeners can learn about your restaurant or learn about you a little bit? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I have, I have an Instagram as one does. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's just, it's just my name. So I was, I was an early adopter with Instagram and <laughs> I, uh, I, I got my first name, which is L U K U S. And mm-hmm. so that's my handle. And from there, there's a link to the restaurant that I'm a partner in and, um, they can read about kind of the posts I've made about my, my journey through coronavirus. Great. Lucas, I'm so happy that um, you had time to talk about your experience with me, and it's really been a pleasure to to hear. Well, I'm sorry about your story, but it's been a pleasure to talk with you and to get your thoughts on what you went through. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate you shining a light on what for some is still a dark place. And so thank you for letting me take the time to tell my story. Oh, thank you so much, and I'm so glad you're well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.